Haley. Let's put on your prose-tinted glasses and join us for a dive into Kim Leggett's The Gracier. Hopefully I pronounced her name right. I am a little nervous about that. Yeah, I don't I don't know how else I would pronounce it, so I feel like we're good there. Off to a wonderful start then. Um, as usual, a couple disclaimers. We are going to start with some lightweight spoilers, um, and then part of the way through we will get into some more heavy spoilers where we go into the book in detail. Yeah, so if you haven't read the book, um, you're probably safe to stick around for a little bit, and then we will uh, warn you when we're going to get more into the details, unless you are just like truly anti-spoiler, and then in which case, if you haven't read it, maybe this episode's not for you. This is your this is your time to uh, find a new episode to listen to. <laughs> um, also, just a couple of content warnings. Uh, generally, just the content about this one is that men are trash. It fu- yep, fuck the patriarchy. Uh, this book is full of, you know, it's not very strong things, but it definitely is going to make you a little angry if that's something that you do not enjoy reading or listening about. So yeah, uh, I just spent this entire book just being angry at the concept of men, but I, it was also very empowering as a woman. So uh, the good part is there's a fair amount of the book that just doesn't have any men, so... Yeah, if only you know. if only more books were like that. Just fewer men, less of the time. That'd be great. Uh, anyway, The Gracier is one of my favorite books um, that I've read in the past few years. I would say, like, a general tagline is that it is like The Handmaid's Tale, but for the YA genre. It's also got, like, a dash of Mean Girls, a, a pinch of Lord of the Flies, just... All of those classics pulled together in like a really fun and also kind of terrifying feminist book. Yes, it definitely maintains that haunting element that of uh, just low level wrongness compared to our real world like The Handmaid's Tale has. I read it shortly after Katie for the first time because she was like, you guys have to read this book. This is editing Katie popping in just to say that we both actually read this book on the recommendation of our friend Nicole, and I thought it would be wrong to take credit. So thank you to Nicole for recommending this book. Um, and it it blew me away when we read it. Been obsessed with it since. Recommend it to everybody because it is just a great sort of contemporary little bit of thriller. Maybe maybe a sprinkle of uh, some fantasy elements, which you know I love. Uh, thrown in there and all around I think it's a great book for most audiences yeah Bailey and I really wanted to talk about this first because it's such a a mix of genres and reading levels and it's also just sort of a perfect mix of what Bailey and I in particular gravitate to in novels I'm much more of a thriller addict and she gets way more into sci-fi fantasy just generally there's obviously a lot of overlap there too but this book really just hits all of those points in a really satisfying way. And it does. And it has a little bit of a, a social commentary seems like a strong way to describe it. But it's also like a little bit. Of, it gives you a little something to think about after you've closed the book. For sure. Uh, which is not all. It's not always something I go for when I'm reading because I'm a firm believer that reading is allowed to be for enjoyment as well as learning. But it is nice sometimes to have something that is both enjoyable and you're like, oh, interesting mm-hmm. when you get done with it. Definitely. Agreed completely. So the main premise of this book is that all the 16-year-old girls in a village 
are basically sent away for a year to expel a magic that is basically just a like a thinly veiled metaphor for womanhood and sexual maturation and people think that they get literal magic and if they don't expel it then they'll be able to control the men in the I think it's called a county. Yes. So all the girls are are basically lined up and chosen for marriage uh, if there's a man that would like to choose them and given veils and then they're all sent away for a year and if they come back alive they get to marry the men who chose them. If the men will still have them I believe that at some point the men can come back um say there was the one woman who came back missing an ear mm-hmm. and her husband her future husband was like mm, never mind you know she's not not digging the whole one-eared look uh and so he chose a different wife at the end of the day and also if a woman's not chosen for marriage at all basically they become indentured servants and are forced to do labor even in, either in like the fields is the one that i think got brought up a lot but Basically, other ways to serve the community outside of the inner community social hierarchy. Yes. And when we say thinly veiled metaphor for womanhood, they change out their white hair ribbons to red hair ribbons the day that they have to start their grace year, the year of their 16th year. They trade their ribbons from white to red. Um, so that part is maybe not as thinly veiled as some of the other happenings. Uh, they they do get black ribbons when they come back and become wives, which is, I think, the author saying something for sure. For sure. And uh, as we've alluded to, they face lots of difficulties during their year, uh, including but not limited to faceless wild men called poachers who try to basically pick them off one by one to kill them and sell their body parts. A lot of the body parts end up back going back to the town to be used as aphrodisiacs, which is, uh, once again, men are trash. We warned you at the top of the hour. Yes. Um, do you know what a ghillie suit is, Katie? No, I don't. Oh, so it's one of the camouflage hunting suits, and basically it is an overall, like a coverall clothing that has strips of thin netted fabric that makes you blend in. That is what I picture for these poachers with their shrouds is men in ghillie suits. So just ridiculous giant heaps of fabric cut into little strips to help camouflage them. I have no idea if this is correct or not, but it is what I picture. Hmm. Um, Well, that is deeply unsettling to picture someone dressed like that hunting women. Yes. And also, uh, there's a lot of violence within the the camp of the women. They show a lot of violence to each other for various reasons. They are still subscribing to a very arcane punishment system that is prevalent within the larger county. Basically, if women do anything sort of resembling thinking for themselves, they get punishments um, that range from like whippings to literally being like stoned to death or hung or like burned alive. And uh, minor spoiler because this happens very early in the book. Um if if a husband does in fact get tired of his wife, he can just say that she did something magical. She will face punishment and he is free to choose a new wife that day. Mhm. Yeah. Uh it's not super great. 
Do not love it. <laughs> no, do not love it. Uh, but that's sort of the the world that they're in. And then our main character, her name is Tierney, and she is about to embark on her Gracier. Uh, she is sort of like one of those not like the other girl's main characters, but in a way that Bailey and I both actually enjoy, as opposed to being like really annoying and like whiny and thinking other girls are bad. Tierney just sort of is skeptical of most of the facts she's been told. Um, she was raised a little bit tomboyish by her father and knows a lot more in the way of science and logic than most of the other girls she's surrounded by. And this plays a huge role in the happenings of this upcoming Gracier that they're about to undergo. It's It starts out very much when Tyranny goes into this that she's skeptical. And, and she does face her own internal struggles with what's happening while the girls face external struggles with what's happening. And she attempts to introduce her skepticism to everyone, but in part because of the world that they live in, it ostracizes her from the other girls, making her much more not like the other girls, because she is forced to be separate from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a deep mix of the other girls being skeptical that Tierney is trying to mislead them because they are more of a true believer and they think that she's using her magic for evil. And then there's an antagonist in the camp as well who is like a super true believer and also a bit of a, a an alpha girl, mean girl who is very forceful in her beliefs and and sort of leads the other girls astray just by sheer force of personality. Right. Even within the county, before they left for the Grace Year, Kirsten was the antagonist. She was the leader of the age group girls. Even with just fashion and the talking to the men before they were no longer allowed to talk to men. Because that's something else that happens in this world. You must be separate. Because otherwise your magic could cause men to do something bad. Yeah, and just a just a kind of like high level questioning about a little bit more of the world that we've talked about. We're I'm not really sure on the scope of the world building here, and it's something again. I love this book, but going back, this is something that's just been annoying me. It's like uh, I think there are 33 girls going out for their gracier, and there are 13 men choosing brides, but not even all of those men are in the same age group. So, like, generously, maybe say there are, like, 40 16-year-olds, girls and boys, in this civilization. And then only a certain number of the graciers are gonna, girls are gonna come back, and then of those, only a certain portion get married. So, like, saying there's, like, 25 people per age year there's probably a population of like one to two thousand people which is a little wild to me but in many ways it feels much smaller than that because it seems as tyranny goes through the first scenes of the novel where she's in the county she knows everyone everyone knows her mm -hmm. and all of the women quote unquote and all of the men who are doing the choosing are all within one one room basically mm -hmm. while they were very the world was very immersive, and I never was questioning these things while I was reading. Looking at it outside of reading, there are some some holes kind of with this world building. But as I said, reading it, I was very immersed, and I didn't think any of these things led to real problems. Yeah, no, this is just sort of like after the fact, thinking about it. There, there also seems to be evidence that male babies are much rarer than female babies. There are a lot more... 
um, women and girls than men and boys. And I'm interested as to why that would be. Uh, you know, are these like slightly different humans with slightly different genetics? So it's not actually a 50-50 chance of having a girl versus boy baby? Uh, is there some sort of weird male-specific barrenness disease that's happening? So I have a thought on this, and this is possibly due to my background as a a biologist. <laughs> uh, but I'm wondering, because they even have rituals around hoping it will be a male baby while the, the woman is giving birth. And also, there are many mentions of miscarriages, and it's not clear if that's specific to Tierney's mom or if that's common. So that got me wondering if there's something on the Y chromosome that mm. is causing these the male pregnancies to not be able to go full term and that's why there are fewer men in the population or possibly we could just attribute it to part of the magic but you know my mind tends to go towards the scientific explanation that if there are fewer men in the population there's a high rate of non-full-term pregnancies that something with the y chromosome which the female babies would not have Mm -hmm. uh, that that could be a reason for this sort of difference in population yeah, that would definitely make sense. And again, this is not something that's explored or or even attempted to be explained in the book, which is fine. I don't think it takes away from the book at all. It's just looking back, I'm like, why would that be, you know? Because it, it serves the story, I guess. Mm -hmm. Which is fair. Right. I was going to say, I say that as if that makes it a bad thing. It does not make it a bad thing at all that it serves the story. It makes it more interesting because it introduces an element of exclusivity to being chosen to be married. Mm -hmm and things like that. It also, I think, in a way, increases the perceived power of men because there are so few of them. And if they hold the power, they now have more choices to do what they want. Mm -hmm. If there are yeah. more women, uh, then the women become even more expendable. Yeah, absolutely. Because they can just choose a new wife. So... That is uh, definitely an interesting aspect of the world building. Yeah, and again, it, the world in general, it feels like close enough to our world like it could be a handmaid's tale or hunger games style post-apocalyptic version of the u.s or it could also be just like an alternate universe and it's not really clear and again it doesn't necessarily need to be clear because there definitely are fantasy elements of this story it's just it's just what i've been thinking about after reading it for the second time and being like where like where did this community come from it feels very real as if it were in a different, maybe an alternative timeline almost of the United States. They talk about the population of the county immigrating there. And so that makes it sound sort of like a parallel to Puritans, things like that coming to America. But there's nothing aging the technology of the county into any specific time within you know the real world history they don't really make mention of candles versus lights or anything like that uh, the only thing that i can think of is when they bring in hot water for a, a bath tyranny says i wonder how many kettles he had to boil for this but mm -hmm. at that at the same time for a very very long time in history you had to boil kettles of water for a hot bath and also the situation that they're taking that bath in is purposefully a remote living situation and not part of the county yeah that's not like in the heart of the middle of the county it's it's definitely more 
um, in the wilderness, so to speak. Yes, I was trying to make that one not super spoily since we haven't given the the heavy warning yet and still are sort of talking about the broad level. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I mean, that kind of sums up all the all the sort of high level stuff that I wanted to hit on. Did you have any other comments? I think the rest of my high level comments have to do with things at the ending and stuff like that. So stuff that we'll talk about once we've gone into detail about the ending and things like that. Okay, then I guess that would make this our warning that we're going to get actually real spoilery now. That was, this is your chance to jump off if you have not read the book and do not want to know some of the more detailed opinions that we have. And you can make your own choice about spoilers, but I really do urge you to read this book without listening to our spoilers for the first time. Because the way it is written will keep you turning the pages and I don't want to take away that incredible moment of discovery for you when you figure out how this is going. Yeah, uh, Bailey and I will definitely talk about this more at some point, but we we have uh, opinions on spoilers. My opinion is basically, they don't usually bother me, but if something's really good, I, I want to experience it for myself. And I think this is one of those that you should you should definitely try and experience for yourself. Yes, I I try to avoid giving spoilers because I enjoy learning things but that being said i've had things spoiled for me and it did not ultimately destroy the experience of of reading or watching it it's just in general i i would like to not be spoiled for most things although every time people bring up star wars i do get to say oh spoiler warning since i haven't seen all of them yet and then people <laughs> get extremely angry due to the age of those but <laughs> that's a story for another time yeah that's always fun i i didn't watch Star Wars until after college and every boy I met in college was like I get to show you Star Wars now and then it just never lasted long enough for that to happen but that was funny <laughs> uh, okay anyway so moving away from Star Wars and back to the Gracier back to the Gracier <laughs> we start out on uh, Veiling Day which is as we spoke about before basically when the men come in and give the women they want to marry a veil so the women get dressed up. They go to the church where they have to sit and wait while the fathers and the men who are six or the men who are eligible to marry decide which woman that just became in their grace here that they're going to marry. Yeah, and it seems that there's a fair amount of basically horse trading involved. Like there seems to be a clear hierarchy of like who gets to pick first, and there needs to be an agreement. That's come to between the father of the girl and um, whoever is asking to veil her. Yes. And during this opening on Veiling Day, we learn a lot about Tierney as a character and how she feels, what she wants for the future. She is openly skeptical of the Gracier. She sees the scars that other women carry from it, and she thinks that this is just absolutely the weirdest thing. She doesn't understand it, but also she makes it very clear that she does not want to be veiled. She doesn't want to be married. She doesn't want to be involved with, and by involved with, I mean owned by a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she's very upfront about this to pretty much everyone in her life, including her male best friend, Michael, who has been her best friend since they were kids, and they used to, like, meet in a field and like sneak around watching what other people in the county got up to and they're very close and she 
she knows that Michael is going to marry Kirsten, who is the mean girl in the town. And she's like, you know, gross, but good for him, I guess. And this comes back to that hierarchy because Michael is the son of the county leader. And Kirsten is also somewhere high up in the hierarchy. So the reason they are going to get married is simply because it's it's basically a power couple. Mm-hmm. And they have been talking... Their fathers have been talking, and this marriage is what it's going to be, Michael and Kirsten. And again, Tierney is like, well, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I will see you around. Good for you. I hope it works out mm-hmm. for you guys. I'm going to work in the fields because then at least I can look up at the sky. Yeah, and she's basically also asking Michael, since he's going to be taking over that position of county leadership, um, if he'll basically put in a, a good word for her to work in the fields, which is typically thought of one of the lowest outcomes but it's what Tierney wants and she's hoping that as her friend Michael will listen to her and this is just another like kind of detail I I just realized about this county presumably Michael and Tierney are the same age so they're just like giving the county over to a 16 year old yeah is that what's happening here I considered that and jumping forward to the end (laughs) of the book yes on the day that the Gracier girls come back Michael's dad looks at him and when there is a punishment to be doled out he goes this is your problem now, and essentially washes his hands of county leadership to a 17-year-old. That is just, like, why would they do that? (laughs) Anyway, uh, you may have picked up on this by now, but Michael does not veil Kirsten. He veils Tierney because he loves her, because they've been best friends since they were children. And he wants what he perceives as best for her, which, in this case, I truly do believe comes from a good place, but due to their society, he still thinks a little bit that he has the right to make this decision, regardless of what Tierney wants. Mm-hmm. So now Kirsten is out for blood because Tierney, quote unquote, took her man as mm-hmm. if Tierney had any say in how any of this goes down. It's also been pretty implied to this point that girls hoping to quote-unquote snag a husband will have sex with them in the field in like the meadow leading up to veiling day and it's also pretty explicitly stated that kirsten and michael have been having sex but also that kirsten's been having sex with other boys yes and keep in mind we know this in part because tyranny and michael watch people in the meadow sometimes (laughs) yeah and she's like i've seen you and kirsten in the meadow why would you give me this veil he's like I mean, you've probably also seen Kirsten in the meadow with other guys, but you were just too nice to say anything to me because you were like trying to spare my feelings. So like, it's not a big deal to Michael. It's just really interesting to juxtapose this like open secret that like all these kids are fucking each other in the meadow and the like deeply puritanical nature of the community. Yes. And it is completely glossed over in the book how that this is a thing that happens, but no one addresses it. If these 16-year-olds know about it, it is very clear that all of the people who have already been through the grace year and who are adults in this community also know about it, and yet nothing's done. Yeah, and it's things like um, like Gertie getting punished for uh, like looking at that lithograph slash trying to kiss Kirsten, but nobody cares that Kirsten is just like literally having sex with people. Right. It's the, the sin is defined... Oh god, this is gonna get... A little carried away, but the sin is basically defined by what harm does it do. If it's good, if the man enjoys it and it's good for the man, it's probably not going to be classified as a sin. 
in the case of Gertie and Kirsten and the lithograph, uh, no men got enjoyment out of it. So uh, punishment. Dirty Gertie. Mm, I have so many feelings about that. Yes. Yeah. I know. Pretty much. It's, that, it, that creates a lot of conflict. Yeah. So. It's great. Tierney gets veiled by Michael and they set off through the woods to go to the encampment for the Gracier. And while they're walking through the woods, they see all of the women who have been exiled because, oh, by the way, if your body is not accounted for during the Gracier by the poachers, a female family member will be exiled to the outskirts of the county in punishment for the perceived sin of you failing to be captured by poachers, question mark. Yeah, so I guess the Gracier is basically seen as like a a penitence for like Eve's original sin, which there's a, a lot of talk about Eve in this book that I also have feelings about. But if you are not, if you don't return alive, or if your body's not accounted for, as in you were killed by the poachers, and you just either disappear or were killed some other way, it's seen as like not taking your full penance. And so somebody else has to take that punishment in your stead. And that person is usually a little sister, which is so gross. Yes. So, for example, in the lead up to getting to the encampment, Laura, one of the young women in Tierney's Grace Year, fills her pockets with rocks and rolls off of the canoe to drown herself. They obviously cannot get her body back, so at the end of the book, her little sister's white ribbon is ripped out of her hair and she is kicked out of the county to go live on the outskirts. By the way, what happens in the outskirts is that all the women are basically forced into prostitution. It's like the women in the county get to get impregnated and the women of the outskirts are where the men take out all their like sexual frustrations. So it's a lot more violent um, and gross. I'm going to say the word gross about the men in this book a lot, because they sure are. Yeah, speaking of gross men, if you are a guard that is leading the ladies to their grace here, um, also, you can't... I can't pronounce this word, so I'm not even going to try. Castrated? Oh, I guess that's a better way of saying it, yeah. Thank you. What were you What were you trying to say? I, I'm going to have to type it, because I can't spell it. Or I can't say it. <laughs> okay. Um. Yes, they are castrated. Eunuchs. They're made into eunuchs. Yes. Okay. Girl, you do not watch enough Game of Thrones. It's pronounced eunuch. No, I read Game of Thrones and I ignored <laughs> that word because I didn't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> it is implied at some point that the guards also go to the women on the outskirts who are prostitutes, but because they have been castrated, they can't complete the act and they never leave satisfied. Katie's gagging right now and I, I feel that. I'm trying. I've got some air quotes going on. Um, they don't leave satisfied, and so it's implied that it is a violent, violent interaction with these guards who feel otherized to the rest of the men, and it's taken out on the women who were punished and forced to leave the county. And to be clear, when I the issue I have with all these men's actions are that they're completely reasonable for things that men in our actual real-life society would do and the ways that they would act, and that's why I have such visceral, angry reactions to all of this, because it's all realistic, and that fucking sucks. Yes, absolutely. Um, So the guards take the ladies to their little encampment. They pretty much chuck them and their year of supplies inside and slam the gates shut. 
Yeah, it's like a walled off. There's like a a couple of buildings. There's like a larder and a place for them to sleep and a well. And clearly also like a forest that is walled in. So I don't quite have a sense of like how big this encampment is, but it seems fairly large. It seems reasonably large for a group of, of people to live for a year, but it becomes apparent that the small front area with these buildings is is considered the only place a lot of the Gracier girls spend the entire year mm-hmm. while they're there. There is, at multiple points, Tyranny talks about the perimeter of the camp, meaning beyond that is woods and people do not go beyond that very often. And because Tyranny was raised different TM, she is fine going out there and chopping wood to try and make rain barrels and help build tools and things like that. And the other girls are not interested in that. They put the food in the larder and are like, okay, this is where we live now. Yeah, Tierney is very like, rah, rah, let's, you know, survive the- survive this together and-, and work together to make sure that we can live for a year. And all the other girls, mainly led by Kirsten, are like, I mean, why? Like, we're literally just here so that we can expel our magic and then we'll go home. Um, and they totally don't understand that, you know, survival is on the line from the elements. Right. Led by Kirsten, who claims to have already claimed her magic and therefore can help the other girls claim their magic because it must be claimed before it can be expelled. Yeah, and Kirsten's magic is, like, controlling people, uh, which is a, a funny way for her to just basically acknowledge that she's a manipulative little bitch. Very much so. And also, I mean, she's clearly not actually controlling them, but she is manipulating people into doing things and taking credit for things that she's not manipulating people into do. And there's this sense between, I think, most of the girls where they're they're not quite sure, like, what the magic is or what it's going to be like or if what they're seeing and feeling is real. And Kirsten just kind of shoves them along. And so, like, one girl believes her power is rising and setting the sun and so she does this big display of like straining to set the sun even though it's literally dusk and all the girls are like i don't know it seems like it was a few minutes earlier than yesterday so maybe it is her magic and tyranny face palms yeah tyranny's like days get shorter until the solstice like what what are you guys talking about and everyone is like don't you see this woman on the ground sweating clearly she did this and tyranny's like it's fall (laughs) it just this happens Mm -hmm. and that sort of just proves to continue to ostracize tyranny and kirsten takes advantage of this to separate her and blame things when things go wrong on tyranny and it's it's uh it's very interesting and things begin to devolve very quickly between them as a reader it seems so clear that some of these girls are doing something at the power of suggestion like the one who takes off her clothes and crawls around and howls because she thinks she might be able to communicate with animals because it supposedly runs in her family, that that is her family's magic. Mm-hmm. And Tyranny does occasionally have some doubts when she's seeing things like this because the power of suggestion is very strong. And then she says, wait, no, I there has to be an explanation for these things. And I I don't know why I'm letting myself be taken in by it. Like, I just need to survive this year and then I can go home. Mm -hmm. And it will be, it'll be over at least. Uh, And Tierney is falling prey a little bit to the power of suggestion. Like, 
Bailey was saying, but also the power of, super spoiler alert here, also falling suggestion to the power of the fungus in the water that everybody is drinking that is, like, psychedelic. Yes. And so, I, you know, we reread it before we started this episode so everything would be fresh in our minds. And there, the author alludes to this hemlock silt in the water very clearly because Tierney looks at it and is like, wow, that is a very noxious green color. That is weird. And then they all just drink it and they're like, oh, this water tastes funny, but I guess it's just the well. And they keep drinking it. And it, at one point, it finally all comes to a head. Yeah, Kirsten bans all the other girls together to banish Tierney, and so she's trying to survive on her own within these woods and the encampment. Then there's the bear. Oh god, I always forget about the bear. Right. Like, the bear doesn't attack her or anything because the bear gets distracted by somebody on the other side of the fence who gives her a chunk of meat to eat. And this chunk of meat sort of gives Tierney the strength to decide she's got to go back to the camp and because she's at the end of the rope basically like there's she doesn't know what to do yeah and she thinks that the the chunk of meat was provided by her guard friend hans because he told her specifically that he was gonna be watching out for her and that's why he took the guard post to go with the gracier girls even though it's pretty highly regarded as a, a shit deal so this all goes down they get mad at her Tierney gets an axe in her shoulder she narrowly escapes the camp and is taken into the care of a poacher. And we find out that the poacher is the one who threw her the meat. And he also had spared her life earlier. And he nurses her back to health. The next bit of the book is basically Tierney and Riker, the poacher, sort of learning a delicately balanced mutual distrust of each other and sort of an unwillingness to talk about what they're going to do when Tyranny's shoulder is better. Mm-hmm. Riker eventually reveals that, so Riker is obligated to not kill Tyranny. Basically, he made a deal with her dad to spare her if it came to the point where Tyranny was at risk of being killed by the poachers. Mm-hmm. So eventually Tyranny convinces this man to take off his shroud um, and he's like, okay. And then we see that they are falling in love because, you know, captor, captive, it's 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 a thing. Yeah, it sure is. But it's kind of cute. I don't know. I, I like Riker. Riker can Riker can get it. Right. It's not as bad as some of the uh like, you know, captor situations can be in books especially. It's not like it's definitely not like full gross Stockholm syndrome. It's he's like trying to save her life in the wilderness, but they just don't know like each other's backgrounds right and also her alternative is being back in a camp with a bunch of psychotic ladies so you know i can understand her hesitancy to return (laughs) at riker's hut she discovered that it was hemlock silt that was in the well yes that's when she like made the discovery that these girls are, are literally going crazy because they are ingesting poison because the poachers also collect hemlock silt to sell to the old ladies who have visions or whatever and mm-hmm. they're like oh yeah hemlock silt will make you crazy that's why the old ladies take it and tyranny is like wait can i can i just like see some i i'd be quite interested in 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 seeing some hemlock silt mm-hmm. and while all this is happening tyranny meets riker's friend anders who is like super anti gracier girl and basically just wants her to get as far away from Riker as possible. 
So at this point, since Anders is blackmailing them, she's like, well, if I have to go back, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and fix this and, and convince the girls what's going on. Definitely. Um, they have sex because that's the best way to say goodbye. Apparently she convinces them by basically telling the girls that her magic is being able to talk to ghost. So she is able, she knows what happened to all these girls who are outside, who got taken by the poachers, which means that the remaining Gracier girls trust her a little bit because how else could she know these things if she didn't speak to their ghost? Until one day, one of the girls sees someone dressed in like all dark colors creeping through the camp and they think it's a poacher in the camp. And so this, there's another bout of drama where they all have to, there's a fight. And um, so Tierney is like, oh my God, it's me. Anders is after me. Because a poacher saved my life while I was out there. What I don't remember what she told them about this. But she was like, I can take care of this. I'm going to go. I'm going to lay a trap for him. And I'm going to get rid of this problem once and for all. Like, he's the ghost in camp. It's this poacher. So she goes back to the side of the spring. She digs a pit. She fills it with sharp sticks. And then she covers it up. And she lays in wait until the person who is following her literally falls in a pit. Mm-hmm. And, and is impaled. Mm-hmm. And it's it's Hans. It's fucking Hans. Yeah, it's her guard friend. It's not it's not the creepy, scary poacher that hates her and wants to kill her. It's her guard friend who uh, is a eunuch and has been in love with her the whole time since they met when she was seven. And the reason he is now stalking her is because he is extremely angry that she fucked Riker. I mean, he's like bitter that mm-hmm. he couldn't do this. So now he's angry and he wants to kill her because once again, he did not get the girl. Oh, yeah, there's this whole other subplot that we might have briefly mentioned, but he became a guard because the woman that he loved uh, was chosen to be veiled by another man. And then he ends up killing her because out of jealousy. And there's this whole subplot where Tyranny finds that girl's bones and is like, what happened to you? Um, Hans, Hans happened to her. Yes, uh, Hans killed her. And the scratching sound that Tyranny keeps hearing is the other half of this woman's ribbon that Hans carries around like a fucking totem. I just, he's, oh, man. Yeah, do, do not, do not like Hans. It's okay, because, like, Tyranny impales him and then covers up his body with all the dirt that she dug out of the hole, and so, like, moving on. Mm-hmm. The girls survive the year. And after some convincing from Tyranny, they decide to leave the camp in a better condition than they found it, where they... They cover up the well and and write, they like scorch the word poison into the covering so that the next girls know not to drink it. And they like mark a path up to the spring with the fresh water. They also chop down the punishment tree and burn it. Mm -hmm. The minor thing that happens in between all of this is Tyranny does get one more chance to visit Riker. Oh fuck, I forgot that. Because it hurts me. She goes back and they make this plan how like once again... They're going to run away and it's going to be, you know, they're going to get to live on the outskirts and life is going to be hard. But ultimately, it's going to be better to be away from all of the bullshit the county has. So they are together. They spend all night learning each other's bodies, making love, blah, blah, blah. And then they break my heart because as they're escaping, Riker is killed. And even worse, it's by his best buddy, Anders who was just trying to kill Tierney. Stupid. So now Tierney doesn't have any recourse except to go back to the girls. 
the girls live out the rest of their like remaining days and they go back to the county. Once they get back to the county, Tierney has this brilliant idea that she's going to reveal the fact that she's pregnant. What? And, you know, reading it the second time, I actually did pick up on a lot more of, like, Tierney's very protective of her body once she gets back. And she mentions, like, not being able to fit through a hole in a fence the same way. And she's, like, really conscious of covering up with her cloak. And there's even a mention of, like, all the girls get their periods, but Tierney doesn't. That's the one that stuck out to me. It's definitely not explicitly stated until this, like, big reveal back in the county. But there there are a lot more hints than I picked up on the first time I read it. Agreed. So she reveals that she's pregnant and everyone is like, oh my god, heretic, like, you slut, you whore, we're gonna hurt, like, people are, women are stoning her. And Michael steps forward and is like, no, that's my baby. And everyone is confused because Michael hasn't left the county. He didn't, like, sneak away and go hang out with the Gracier girls. So Michael tells them all that uh, Tyranny's magic was coming to him in a dream because he was too selfish to wait the entire year to be together. So they were having dream sex and Tyranny got pregnant in real life from dream sex. And everyone is very skeptical that this is happening until all of the Gracier girls who are remaining step forward and they're like, no, we witnessed Tyranny going into these dreams. This is real. Mm-hmm. Including Kirsten, who has not like fully come around to like, be pals with Tierney or anything, but has changed from her experience and like realized that maybe she was in the wrong for some of it. So she's, I think, the second girl to to step up. Yes, and be like, no, I yeah, I've seen it too. So you know, at the end, Michael is like, okay, great. They have a sort of frosty relationship for a little bit while Tierney figures out her shit, and also because it's normal for these women to come back from the Gracier and need time to recover, but since. The girls did not continue drinking the hemlock, so they actually don't need the time to recover. Despite that, uh, Tierney sort of stays in seclusion for about a month to a month and a half. Then her and Michael settle into a sort of easy routine where they are functioning, you know, as a couple. Uh, Michael is just kind of chill. He's like, okay, whatever. You're having somebody else's baby, I guess. That's fine. We'll move on. I don't know that he's that chill about it. I think he's still, like, deeply pissed off at her but he truly loves her for everything that she is and he's not he didn't want her dead and he's willing to raise the baby and since the beginning of the book and also like her whole life Tierney's been having these dreams of this girl with short hair and a birthmark who is like leading this big rebellion where all the women are are like taking their power and um fighting back about against the oppression and she grew up telling michael about these dreams even though women of the county aren't allowed to dream because dreaming is magic fucking men Ugh. um but anyway she's been telling michael about the dreams these whole times and when he first veils her she's like the fuck my dude and he's like i don't want you to change like i love you for who you are like what you've said is important to me also and she doesn't really believe him until he saves her life at the end by claiming the baby is his and uh, also, she starts to notice he, like, becomes the owner of the apothecary because since his dad has stepped down. And there was a fire at the apothecary and all of the, like, body parts of the poached Gracier girls is what burned up in the fire. Because Michael is also starting to slowly fight back against the systems of oppression because Tierney made him believe that from when they were kids. And so he's, like, 
I love you and what you believe is important to me too. Like the girl in your dreams was just as important to me as she was to you. And I just wish you would have like noticed that about me sooner. Right. So Tyranny does have this uh, baby girl, names her Grace. And it's because she says that, you know, this girl is going to be the one that changes everything. Because she's the baby is born with um with the birthmark that the girl in her dreams has. Right. And so this leads me to the discussion that we had a little bit earlier about um, it's never quite clear if the magic is actually real. But when you read that Tyranny has a baby who is the girl of her dreams, you think on some level there is that magic because she's clearly having a prophetic dream. And you find out that Tyranny's mom and other women in the community have a sort of small level resistance going on and that Tyranny's going to get to be a part of this. So you're left with the question, were these dreams real magic? Do the women have magic? Uh, maybe not the crawl around and, and how with wolves type, but... Yeah, I feel like it's quite clear that the gracier magic that they're expecting is not real and that that is a, a fiction made up by the men to control them. But these dreams of having a dream with a girl that Tierney then gives birth to that has the same birthmark, you know, that's clearly some sort of actual supernatural element or maybe just a symbolic supernatural element that just kind of gets a little bit out of hand. This is one of the things that I, I don't love in general when I'm reading a book. Like, I like for books to either be openly supernatural or for the things that seem supernatural to end up with, like, an actual explanation. And this is kind of treading that line of ambiguity that I, I don't love in terms of supernatural elements. Right. I don't have a major opinion because I read so much fantasy. For me, the, real, the line between real life and fantasy is just blurred anyway, so... <laughs> I don't stop to consider that this magic thing might be an ambiguous touch over the line. I, I just accept it. This is what it is. I believe Tierney had prophetic dreams. That's cool. I don't believe the gracier magic is real. Mm -hmm. But an aspect I did really like that we learn about with the resistance is the use of the flowers as code. Mm -hmm. So throughout the book, uh, in the county, all of these flowers have different meanings. And there's this one flower that Tyranny keeps seeing everywhere, this red flower with the black center. And she doesn't know what it means. And it comes to find out her mother has given her some too. And it's a symbol of women who are in on the resistance. They meet in the woods. And it's the beginning of women taking back their power. Power with a capital P, unclear, or just power? Uh, that's part of the uh, amb ambiguity also and the open ending that was left at the end of the book. Yeah, so in like the very last scene, Tierney gives birth to this baby girl and then um, she like falls back asleep or passes out and then has this dream about Riker. And Riker used to have dreams where he would dream about a deer and it would either it would like run right through him. And then he was killed near a deer or something. And so she's like, sees Riker and she's like, and I was left wondering if he would take me into his arms or run right through me. And it literally never occurred to me and still, until I started reading a few more reviews of it after I had finished reading it, that people were interpreting that as like tyranny, possibly like dying from childbirth. Never occurred to me at all. I assumed she was having a childbirth 
fever dream Mm -hmm. where she was just thinking of the father of her baby and she was like oh Riker I wish we could be together will he run right through me and then I was like oh cool and then they go on to like change the world or whatever I assumed she lived I never thought for a second past that yeah it for sure did not occur to me but I I saw it mentioned like the ambiguous ending I saw it mentioned in a bunch of different reviews and I was like what and then I I looked a little bit more into it I guess uh do you have any thoughts on like ambiguous endings of books overall um I again tend to totally like not even notice when endings are ambiguous because my brain will just like fill in an explanation I'll be like okay yeah um like what Inception you've seen Inception right absolutely okay spoilers for Inception at the end of Inception the top is still spinning when the film cuts to black and people are like so does this mean he's still in the dream world um but it doesn't because the top was not his totem his totem was his wedding ring so that am- that ending is not ambiguous at all, in my opinion. Right. I I tend to just take endings at face value. So if, like, with the Gracier, I just assumed it was she was dreaming because we've already covered how she had prophetic dreams and her dreams mean something. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, cool. She's dreaming of Riker. Closed the book and moved on. And I think that happens to me a lot with amb- ambiguous endings. I'm just, oh, okay, cool. This happened. And it's not until I go to read something else where I'm like, oh, really? Could it be that? And maybe that's our blind spot, Katie. Maybe that's... Yeah. With we, we just take our endings and we run with it. And one day we're going to read a book and talk about it. And someone's going to be like, hey, did you pick up on this at the very end? Nope. No. Yeah, I basically just assume that I'm too smart and I just like fill shit in because I'm like this is clearly what was intended and sometimes that's not the case right um when I do when they're when I do like recognize and catch ambiguous endings it totally depends for me whether it was like well done or or unsatisfying typically though I am not one of those people who's like this series ended perfectly and now the series should just be over I would watch 86 seasons of a show where the characters just like continue like growing up and raising their kids or whatever. I'm going to consume all of that media. I don't think that things should should stay dead. And that's just a a flaw of my personality is that I will read things even once they are terrible. I am a firm believer that if you ruin canon, even slightly, uh, it's over. I will not revisit it. Stop. End the thing. Even if the ending sucks, don't try and come up with more because it is always worse and my first experience with this was scott westerfeld's pretties uh or ugly's pretty special series he wrote these three books it's a trilogy unsatisfactory ending um but an ending nonetheless and fans basically pestered him into writing a fourth book called extras and he had it take place very far into the future it barely features the characters of the trilogy and standalone, it might have been a good book, but as an addition to the trilogy, it was not good. It didn't add to the story. And so I think we should let things lie. And I've never moved on. I mean, that's fair. And like, there are there are instances of things ruining the rest of the series for me. Like, uh, think of How I Met Your Mother. I will never watch that show again. I'm still mad about it. I will not ever stop being mad about it. Will anyone? 
And like the ending of the Game of Thrones TV show, once again, I think that if George R. R. Martin ever does finish those books, you know, knock on wood, I'm not, I don't have high hopes. Um, I think that it could end the same way and I would be less mad about it because it would be earned. But the way the show ended, boy, am I mad about it. Um, and I, I just like, do not have any interest in going back and rewatching that anytime soon, even though the first five seasons of that are some of the best seasons of television of all time. Right. I uh, did not watch all the way through the seasons, so I can't really speak to the ending. And at this point, I have no interest in watching the ending unless it's going to be the only semblance of a conclusion I get because we will never get Winds of Winter and that's fine. Yeah, it's we're, we're getting we're getting to the acceptance po- portion of the evening. I haven't reached the acceptance portion of Doors of Stone, though. Like that line. <laughs> I need it so bad, but Pat just doesn't. I still need Doors of Stone. It just makes me angry on Twitter. He's always like, if you ask me if I'm writing, I'll stop writing. And I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> You're just trying to break my heart. Why is he such a dick? Uh, anyway, what I was saying is maybe I, I get most of my um, continuance in fan fiction, which I'm totally fine with and content with but again even post game of thrones ending like i would read about spoiler alert sansa ruling the the north just keep giving me content i will keep consuming it i'm just one of those monsters right well and i would i would wager that a lot of fanfic content that's put out is actually better than post canon content that's fair so i mean the obvious example there is Harry Potter. There is so much good Harry Potter fan fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, then there's the Cursed Child, which... Not canon. Right. Exactly. So the the fanfic is is definitely better there. And if you want to continue... If you want Marauder's Error era, you want fan fiction. Mm-hmm. And boy, do I. Right. <laughs> right. We... All day, baby. Serious Black. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um. Again, I, I simp for the Marauders. I got distracted thinking about Sirius Black. I'm sorry, all. Same, same. Love that, love that boy. Uh, overall, I just, I really enjoyed this book. I found it a deeply powerful story uh, for and about women and how we can be sort of the worst about tearing each other down, like Kirsten, but even that tends to come from a, po- a place of the world and the men and the patriarchy teaching us that that's what's expected and good and Kirsten is a true believer and just an extreme product of her extreme environment and we see a shift in her she doesn't come all the way around to to Tierney's view inside but she does stand with her in the end and and experience a shift in perspective which I think is really important to see yes she may not be team Tierney but she is now team woman she is mm-hmm. on the side of the other gracier girls whereas in the beginning she was very one-dimensionally i am going to get the best i can get at whatever it cost you that's mm-hmm. fine as long as i get mine and so to see her grow from that and realize that she can get things that she wants but still support the other girls is a wonderful thing to see And it does come to the point where all of these women are standing up against their oppression when they support Tierney and Michael. They're saying, we're not going to let you do this to one of us again. And that's powerful to see the women stand up and be a force to reckon with in this small way. Yeah. I'm going to just read the passage from the end where all the girls are, are standing together. Okay. 
I'm telling Gertie to stand down, don't get in trouble for me, when Kirsten follows suit. One by one, the girls fall in around me. It nearly brings me to my knees. Never in my life have I seen a group of women stand together in this way. And as I look around the square, I can tell it doesn't go unnoticed. The men are too caught up in their rhetoric, screaming red-faced into the void, but the women stand in soft silence as if they've been waiting for this their whole lives. And like smoke signals on a distant mountain, I see a flash of red spread throughout the crowd. Um, I just, I like that, like brought me to tears when I read it. I have goosebumps from you rereading <laughs> it right now because it, outside of the novel, even it, it's a very powerful scene of the world will move around us. But if we're in this together, we can have these moments with each other as women in support and the flash of red in this case being the flowers Mm -hmm. just showing even further than than the women standing literally standing up next to her that there are women out there who support her while these men are so inside their own perception of what's happening because they can't deal with things not being what they perceive in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the red flower and the subtlety about the way that the women are forced to communicate in the society, it reminded me of things like the the whisper networks in Hollywood that we were hearing about around the, the Me Too era when it, that started, where women would warn each other about people like Harvey Weinstein. Uh, they would just have to do it quietly. And it was like an open secret to anyone within that community but people outside of the community like the men or those of us that have nothing to do with Hollywood would have never known that it existed and that's sort of how they're using the red flowers here and I think that is such a a powerful symbolism of the way people are are forced to find ways around their oppression. Right and especially coupled with flowers being a theme throughout the book it gives even more power to the women taking something that presumably part of the flower communication is is a part of this community of oppression, but they have taken one piece of it, this red flower, and made it into their message of we are together, we support each other, this is how we will spread the word. Yeah, I agree completely. And I also, I liked about the book that it was just seeds of change. Um, it was a little small inching forward of a movement. It wasn't a full revolution the way a lot of YA dystopia books are, like Hunger Games and and Divergent. It was an acknowledgement that sometimes we're not in a position to make those full steps, but it doesn't mean the little steps that we're taking aren't valuable to all of the people within the movement. Right. And even if you think your your steps didn't make a change, down the road it could. You say seeds of change, and what I immediately thought of was June's Garden. So Tyranny had all these seeds in her cloak and she attempted to plant them and it didn't work. She thought it did not work. They got washed away in the storm and she left disappointed that her grand action to save herself didn't work. And she comes back later and the garden is there. Mm -hmm. The seeds have grown even without her care. And so in some ways that could be paralleled to, you know, she started these small movements towards revolution um, and, she has yet to see them come to fruition, but she might yet. She doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And I do fully agree. I like that this was not just another YA novel where it's up to our young heroine to to change the world completely. Um, she It was much more down to earth. I'm not saying I hate 
uh, YA dystopian novels where the young heroine changes the world completely. But this is a different book, and I like that for that reason. Yeah, and a lot of the book was centered around Tierney thinking that she knew things and thinking that she saw things, but really she was missing all of the subtleties and all of the deeper meanings behind things. Like, she saw her father in the apothecary and thought that he was being a gross old man and buying an aphrodisiac, but really he was trying to to create a smallpox vaccine for the people in the outskirts. And she saw her mother with the with the red lips from one of the medicines or whatever and thought that that was a gross aphrodisiac as well. But that was because she had gotten injured, you know, sowing active dissent against their community and had to keep that a secret. And that quote from the beginning where her mother says, your eyes are wide open, but you see nothing. And then throughout her struggle during the Gracier, she starts to actually see the world for what it is and all of those subtleties and shades of gray. Yes. And she says that to her mother at, at near the end about how she starts to see more. And that is when her mother invites her to become even more involved in the, the steps towards revolution. And I thought it was very good because at the beginning, you are given the picture that tyranny and her mother have nothing in common and it hurts their relationship. But by the end, with the changes Tierney has gone through, it becomes very clear that their relationship is much better for all of the things that Tierney has learned and seen. Um, and I'm choosing to believe that she she lived through the end. And so her and her mom went on to have a very happy, fulfilling relationship together. Yeah. And, and raising, you know, their the daughter Grace to be the, the beacon of, of swifter change and revolution. And I also think it's important just to note that Tierney learns how to fight the system from within the way her mother has been doing. You know, she thought her mother was one of the most vicious women in the community because she would always run up to a woman being punished. And then she later realizes it's because she was running up with a word of encouragement or with a flower. But she has to to appear to be part of that system um, so that she doesn't get punished by the men. And Tierney learns to kind of play that game as opposed to being the loud, outspoken one. And then she also teaches the rest of the Gracier girls to be a little bit more outspoken and to play the game, but not necessarily buy into the game. Yes. And I think that there are very few scenes in this book that did not go unplanned to mean something like that. Mm -hmm. Um it's not a particularly long book, but it seems that every action has its point and its reasoning. And I just, the more I think about it and the more we talk about it, the more the message of the book becomes apparent. And as we've said before, it's very much a wonderful, reader-friendly book with a powerful message without being too in-your-face social commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the social commentary is there when you stop to evaluate it the way we are doing. And I think you'll come away with um, a general gist of, of what the social commentary was. But you're not being forced to, like, read feminist theory to keep up with it or anything like that. Right. I just like the way that it was presented. And again, that each interaction and each small piece that you learn more about, like Tierney's mother being the first to throw stones. 
is saying something important. Mm -hmm. Agreed completely. And it just, you know, even with all the, the bleakness and the darkness in this book, and even with the subtlety of the change at the end of the community, it just makes me so hyped to be a woman. You know, the corollary to our, our men are trash disclaimer at the top of the show is that women are good and powerful and I love them and I'm happy to be one. Yes. It's a very uh, girl power book without being raw, raw girl power of, as you said, like some feminist theory can be, you're not reading that, but you are reading a moving book that speaks to uniquely women. Agreed. So um, speaking of powerful women, Libba Bray is a well-known author. And when we were uh, researching reviews and sort of looking across the internet, we came across this this quote from Libba Bray about the Gracier. A heart in your throat, action-driven story that's equal parts horror-laden fairy tale, survival story, romance, and resistance manifesto. I couldn't stop reading. And basically that... That just reminded us about Libra Bray and the book um, A Great and Terrible Beauty. Because in many ways, I feel as if the quote could have been applied to A Great and Terrible Beauty. Mm -hmm. um. And also that book was just a complete fever dream. Like I read it in middle school and I remember so little about it. I mean, I loved it. I remember that I loved it. Um, but I just like just a, a total fever dream. Yes, and I actually still have the second book in the series, Rebel Angels. I don't have a great and terrible beauty, but the parts I do remember are wild mm -hmm. and um, a little bit horror-laden with all this, this magic that the women are going through, but also a resistance manifesto, because in A Great and Terrible Beauty, a lot of the reason these girls are coming together is because they are practicing magic at a super strict school where they're not supposed to be doing this, and they are expected to be inside of society's strict structure. Gemma and Felicity have roles to play, and they've discovered through magic that they can escape those roles for a short time, and they start to get a little crazy with it, and things go off the rails rather quickly. <laughs> there is a romance. I mean, I just, when I read that, I absolutely lost it, because I, I remembered A Great and Terrible Beauty, thought for a second Libba Bray was simply describing her own book and then uh, <laughs> Katie and I had a discussion about how we both read that book and it's just wild yeah to think back on truly wild to think back on I might need to I'm planning on going on a, a nostalgia young adult kick later in the year and I might have to add that to my TBR for once I really get that ball rolling I think we should so that we can um, get the facts straight about people becoming trees and things like that. <laughs> yeah, that's truly one of the only memories I have about that book is about the character that becomes a tree. Don't remember the significance of it. Just remember that it's a tree. I'm going to throw out there that the magic in A Great and Terrible Beauty is not ambiguous. It is very <laughs> real, unlike the Gracier. Correct. I can say with confidence that they have capital P power. <laughs> Yeah, uh, absolutely. I do. I do remember that much as well. But yeah, just a pleasant, pleasant reminder that that book exists and that we should definitely read it again. Yes. All right. So I recommend A Great and Terrible Beauty. Whoa. I mean that one too. I recommend The Gracier and I think that everyone should read it. I think uh, women especially will get a lot out of it. And I think it would be important for men to read it too to see what it is that women get out of it. But I greatly enjoyed it. 
I think it would be very interesting to have a man read it and then have a discussion with a woman that's read it and see what they picked up from the book versus what women do and have and have that discussion. We should bully Daniel and Zach into reading The Gracier. Look, it took a lot of bullying to get Zach to watch Moana. <laughs> so I feel like we are asking a lot from our male friends to get them to read this book and then have a discussion with us about it. I don't think it took that much bullying to get Zach to watch Moana. I just think it got it took him time to have time to sit down and watch Moana. He just didn't do it as we were bullying him. Because we were like, Zach, stop what you're doing and watch Moana right now. And he was like, no, there's a hockey game on. He was writing a he was writing a poem about <laughs> hockey. It was a very important poem. It was Twas the Night Before Stars Miss. The night um which for for those of you who are new here slash actually I don't think we've mentioned this on the podcast, I and many of our friends are diehard Dallas Stars fans. And Zach was providing a service to the community. And we were trying to convince him that that service could wait and he should watch Moana because it was 2021 and he had not seen Moana. Don't worry all, in the time since Stars Miss and now, he has watched Moana. He informed us it was a very good film. Yes. So, again, he's easily bullied and we should bully him into reading this book. But nicely, guys. Nicely. Yeah, all of our bullying is done with love. We're we're not Kirstens here. No. I, I'm not, I wouldn't go so far to say as I'm a Tierney, but I, I would comfortably say I'm not a Kirsten. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm a natural skeptic. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I feel like we, we're both a little bit tyrannies. I can probably survive in the woods, but oh, I can't. I I couldn't. I would need. I would need your guidance. I've never been camping. I couldn't. Couldn't do it. Okay, we have a lot of work to do, so I think it's time for this podcast to be over. If we have to teach Katie to survive in the woods, <laughs> yes, please, please help me. Please read the grace here, and we'll talk to you soon. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Let's start reading in between the lines Never know what we might find Yeah, it could be magic Oh Rose Tinted Glasses is hosted by Katie Phillips and me, Bailey Utrecht Our logo is by Baby Truth Collection and our music is by Anna Voss You can find Anna on social media at Anna Voss or at Anna Voss Music You should check her out Please join us again in two weeks, and we will talk about the new adult and young adult genres. See you then. We both tried just tried. Habit. We both just tried to wave, but you guys can't see us wave. We were just waving at each other. No. And to be honest, Katie and I aren't done talking, so we're going to stay on our call. <laughs> and we just waved for no reason, but that it's 2021, and we are also used to Zoom calls. <laughs> and Google Meets that now we wave at the end of a call. And so you all just know we are waving at you now here at Pro's Tinted Glasses. Yeah, we're waving goodbye to you.